39 times so far in this service, you have said, for his steadfast love, he endures forever. Do you believe it? Do you understand it? The psalmist thinks this sentence is so important that he wrote it 26 times. And remember, of course, he wrote this about 3,000 years ago. You couldn't just copy it and then paste, 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 right? Nor could you even type it on a typewriter. You had to write it laboriously by hand. And I don't know if any of you in elementary school had to write a hundred times, I will not talk in class. I did. That gets tiring, right? Well, he wrote this 26 times in this psalm alone by hand. His steadfast love endures forever. He must have thought it was very important. And then I had you proclaim these words 13 more times in response to truths revealed in the New Testament, though I did not write those out by... Maybe I should have written that out 13 times by hand. I did copy and paste. Well, our primary goals this morning are for us to understand that phrase, his steadfast love endures forever, and to believe it now, in this moment, and for the rest of your life. Indeed, for the rest of eternity. The psalmist, by reciting this phrase while he tells of creation and of the redemption of Israel, he is saying this one truth is behind the entire arc of the storyline of Scripture. This truth is what is manifested as God creates the world, as he creates his people, as he brings them to himself, redeeming them from slavery. So we must know this truth. We must hold fast to this truth. If we are to be his people, if we are to fulfill his purpose, if we are to live to his glory— We must know this truth. We must hold fast to this truth if we are to desire him, to delight in him, to worship him in spirit and in truth. So our outline this morning all goes under that phrase. His steadfast love endures forever. First heading, the meaning of the statement itself. And then we're going to walk through the psalm pretty quickly, verses 1 to 4, that love shown in his goodness and might, verses 5 to 9, that love shown in his creation, verses 10 to 22, that love shown in the redemption of Israel, verses 23 and 24, that love shown for the helpless Verse 25, that love shown in daily provision. And then, love shown yet more fully through Jesus. And then in conclusion, verse 26, thank him for his love. That's a lot of headings, but don't worry. 
Some of them are short. So let's get started with the first of those headings, the meaning of the statement itself. It's brief, but it is not easy to translate. We're going to look at two words in particular. The first one is the word translated steadfast love in the ESV. The Hebrew word is a word you should know. Many of you do know. The word is chesed. It's translated love, steadfast love, loyal love, loving kindness, mercy, covenant love, and there are probably more that I missed. It's challenging to translate because it has all these different connotations, and our word love can have connotations that this word doesn't have, and so English translators have struggled to say, what should we use for this Hebrew word, chesed. When Matthew was little, I think he was only two, though maybe he was three. He was our, he is our fifth child. And I had got a little tired of explaining, okay, this is what love means in the Old Testament. So I decided just to teach two or three-year-old Matthew the word. He was memorizing Psalm 23, And so I said, just say chesed, and he had fun with that and got pretty good at it. And so he would recite Psalm 23, and in the end, surely goodness and chesed will follow me all the days of my life. So that's the word that's translated steadfast love. It's one word, not two words. And it's all trying to communicate this love of God that is, not, that is self-generated, not responding to our goodness. We're going to see more of that later. But is a pouring out of who he is, reaching out and bringing into his joy, into his intimacy, those that he showers that love upon. God's chesed. The second word we want to deal with is endures. And what I want to say here is that it's not in the Hebrew. The Hebrew simply says, forever his chesed. We have to add something in English. That doesn't sound quite right in English style, forever his love. And endures, the word endures, rightly captures the idea that his love never ends. And that's certainly something, one of the points the psalmist is making here. But the English word endure usually connotes with difficulty. It lasts after a challenge. Okay, even in what we read from Romans 5, suffering produces what? Endurance, right? And The marathon is an endurance race, or I might have to endure working at a challenging job that I don't really like. But that's not the connotation we want to bring to this phrase. God's love has no difficulty continuing, right? Indeed, that God's love continues is one of the most fundamental truths in the universe, 
That God, our creator, is a God of love and everything he does is an act of love is fundamental to the whole created order. We might even say it is the most essential aspect of the created order is that God's chesed is always there. So I almost prefer to speak the phrase awkwardly, literally, bad English style, forever his love, forever his chesed. And I will probably fall into that sometimes in the rest of this sermon. So having looked at those two words, what is it that the phrase means? Well, I indicated that a second ago. God always acts expressing that love. Every act of his is an expression of that attribute of who he is. God is love. And so that is true over time in the sweeping arc of history and in every particular instance. Okay? So God's love is shown in the whole big storyline, creation to culmination, and his love is shown in every nanosecond. That is true over geography, over place. It is true as he manages the universe as a whole, and it is true in every village, in every crossroad, in every home. And it's true over his people. For all of his people, the entire church, as his kingdom, as his bride, and it's true for Kaylee and for Joy and for Mike, right? God's steadfast love is broad and his steadfast love is particular over time, over place, over people. And so everything God does is an act of love. Now, footnote here, we can also say every act that God does is an act of righteousness. Every act that God does is an act of justice. Every act of God expresses his holiness. God is not sometimes righteous, sometimes just, sometimes loving. Everything he does is all that he is. End of footnote. Our focus today is every act is loving, and we need to see this love. We need to behold this love. We need to take this love to heart so we might give thanks to him and praise him and be his responsive people. Okay, so those are the two words, the meaning of the phrase. Psalm 136 then tells us we can see this love in these five ways that are outlined said in his goodness and might, in creation, in the redemption of Israel, through his exalting the weak and the humble, and then 
in his daily provisions. So let's walk through those fairly quickly. So verses 1 to 4, his love is shown in his goodness and might. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Now, Psalm 135, it's been a little while since I preached on Psalm 135, because we did 139 in between, and then I preached on baptism. But think back to 135. That psalm told us repeatedly to praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Including praise the Lord for his goodness, for he is good. In 136, we read, thank him. Why the difference? Praise, thanks. It is a different Hebrew word. But this word translated thanks here sometimes is translated praise in the ESV. So don't think of this exhortation as completely distinct from the translation from the from the idea of praising the Lord, but a bit different shade of meaning. Psalm 135 was focusing on praising God for who he is. Praise him for his character. Whereas this psalm is particularly focusing on thanking him, inclusive of the idea of praise, thanking him for how who he is impacts us. Okay? So we praise him for his character, his essential being. We thank him for the way that character is expressed towards us. So verse 1, the psalmist begins by calling our attention to his goodness. And here, I read this week Charles Spurgeon's comments in the Treasury of David on this verse. This is a longer quotation than I think I've had in quite some time in a sermon, but this is really rich. So, Spurgeon on God's goodness. Essentially, he is goodness itself. Practically, all that he does is good. Relatively, he is good to his creatures. Let us thank him that we have seen, proved, and tasted that he is good. He is good beyond all others. Indeed, he alone is good in the highest sense. For he is the source of good, the good of all good, the sustainer of good, the perfecter of good, and the rewarder of good. For this, Spurgeon concludes, he deserves the constant gratitude of his people. I don't think I can improve on that. So thank God for his goodness. Verses 2 to 4 then emphasize his might. If he is good and not mighty, we got a problem, right? We have an ally who wants to do good things for us, but he may not be able to. But because he is good and mighty, we can trust him in all circumstances. So verses 2 and 3 say he is the God of gods. There is no other God who approaches him in power and might. He is the Lord of lords. No other Lord 
approaches him in power and might. And verse 4 then gives the theme of the next several verses. To him alone, I'm sorry, to him who alone does great wonders. I think the NET here has a very helpful rendering. Who performs magnificent, amazing deeds all by himself. Performs magnificent, amazing deeds all by himself. And then he gives the examples, creation, redemption of Israel. So let's move then. He's shown his goodness and might, verses 1 to 4. Verses 5 to 9, he displays that steadfast love in creation. Echoing Genesis chapter 1, the psalmist says, God made the heavens by understanding or with skill or with wisdom. And then in verse 6, he continues that he spread out the earth above the water, same picture as in Genesis chapter 1. Verses 7 to 9, he made the lights, the sun, the moon, the stars. And remember, the psalmist is now clearly drawing our attention to the creation account in Genesis 1. God declared that the creation was good. He saw all that he had made, and it was good. So our psalmist has just said, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, And he's drawing our attention to the creation account that said his creation is good. And so his goodness, as well as his power, is displayed in what he made in his creation. So we are to delight in that creation because it displays God's goodness, God's power. And we are to thank him when we behold that creation. When we see beautiful sunrises and sunsets, even if they're the result of smoke coming from Canada, right? When we see, as as Beth and Emma did yesterday, birds that they had never seen before, a species of bird they had never seen before, we are to thank him and praise him, delight in creation because it displays his goodness and power. It's all wrapped up in his love. So that's the first example that the psalmist gives us. The second is his love shown in the redemption of Israel. This is the bulk of the psalm, verses 10 to 22. Remember that the Israelite ancestors had gone to Egypt as just a few dozen people. Now they are a couple of million people. But they're not really a people. They are slaves to the Egyptians. And so in the Exodus, God makes these slaves into his people. In Exodus 19, he says, I have brought you to myself. He brings them out through a series of plagues. Psalm 136 just mentions the last, the death of the firstborn, because that's the one that directly leads to the Exodus. 
So in verses 10 and 11, the psalmist writes, To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them. God had told Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 9, For this reason I raised you up to show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so he does that. He kills the firstborn. He brings them out. And then as verse 13 says, he divides the sea and enables his people, verse 14, to pass through the sea. And then verse 15, Pharaoh and his armies drown. Pharaoh doesn't drown. His armies drown in the sea. But those great acts of deliverance out of slavery do not complete their redemption. At this point, after crossing the Red Sea, they are nomads. They are wandering in the wilderness. And so, verse 16, God led his people through the wilderness. Now, this is just a summary statement. We know from reading Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that this took 40 years. It took 40 years because they were stiff-necked, because they were rebellious, because they kept complaining about things that were going on. But God bears with them and fulfills his promise and brings them into the promised land. As he recounts here, verses 17 to 20, enables them to conquer mighty kings and to take possession of their land. Verses 21 and 22, he gives them as a heritage, as an inheritance, the land that used to belong to these kings. He gives it to Israel, his servant. So they had been servants of Egypt. Now they are his people, his servants. And so the one-time slaves become heirs. They were slaves. Now they have an inheritance from God. They are heirs of God. He purchases them. He redeems them out of slavery. He brings them to himself. They are his people, and he puts them, plants them in his land, which he provides for them. That's the act of redemption that God does for Israel. The next heading elaborates on what God has done. Verses 23 and 24 highlight that God shows his love in reaching out to the helpless. Verse 23, it is he who remembered us in our low estate or other translations, in our weakness, in our humiliation. Indeed, in low estate begins the verse in Hebrew. It's in a position of emphasis. So even in our low estate, especially in our low estate, especially in our humiliation, he remembered us. He brought us out. 
It's a key point, a key point in the story of the redemption of Israel, a key point in the storyline of the Bible. There was nothing attractive that drew God to show his love to these people. As Deuteronomy 7 says, they were not more numerous than any person, any other people. They were the fewest of all peoples. It was only Abraham when God identified him. And as history indicates, they were not more faithful than any other people. We've just said they were stiff-necked and rebellious. But again, as Deuteronomy says, Deuteronomy 7 says, he loved them because he loved them. It was a love that originated in himself, not in anything attractive in the beloved. And so in their humiliation, he redeems them. That's the very nature of chesed, of his steadfast love. And then verse 24, he rescued us from our foes. And the idea of rescue itself has a connotation of capturing a prey. And so one commentator suggests in a footnote, he snatched us as his prey from being their prey. He brought them into his relationship with himself. And so, we are to delight in our redemption from slavery, delight in his love shown to us in our humiliation because it displays his goodness, his power. So, to this point, we've seen that love shown in creation through great wonders. We've seen that love shown in redemption. But then verse 25 brings out that God not only acts in these huge ways, redeeming a people, creating a universe, he also is present in the little things. And so the next heading, his love shown in daily provision, verse 25, he who gives food to all flesh, NIV, to every creature, NET, to all living things, Well, at a minimum, this is saying we should give thanks to God when we sit down for a meal, right? I mean, this verse does justify saying grace before meals, to thank God that he provided this food, that this food is a picture of his provision, as Peter says, of everything, him granting us everything pertaining to life and godliness. But taking that idea from Peter, what the psalmist is commending is a continuous attitude of gratitude, praising the one who gives in every moment good gifts to the undeserving. So, He's emphasizing through this single verse that God is the God of the minuscule as well as of the huge, great acts that he does. He's always showing his people a token of his goodness and love. 
in minutes, in seconds, in the provision of a tasty morsel of food, as well as in guiding, directing them throughout their lifelong. So he is loving in big ways and little ways. And we'll see that more in a second. So that brings us almost to the end of the psalm. But now, as has been our habit as we've worked our way through psalms, we want to see how do we see Jesus in this psalm? So love shown yet more fully through Jesus. Don't let the title of this section mislead you. It's not that, okay, God the Father did creation. God the Father redeemed Israel, and now we're going to look at Jesus. No. Jesus was involved in creation. So it was the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who did that work of creation. John 1.3, all things were made through Jesus, the Word. And without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus was involved in creation. And of course, Jesus was involved in the redemption of Israel. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that as the Israelites left Egypt, they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And as the author of Hebrews makes clear... All the Old Testament sacrifices are pictures of Jesus' sacrifice. That no one was ever saved by the sacrifice of a bull or a goat or a lamb. It is impossible, says the author of Hebrews, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All of them were pointers, pictures, looking forward to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So Jesus is involved in what we've already seen, God's loving acts in creation, God's loving acts in the redemption of his people Israel. But in our third response of reading this morning, we stated truths that are revealed more clearly in the New Testament. And we use the same refrain, his steadfast love endures forever in order to show that the entire story of the Bible displays God's chesed. Indeed, it's not too much to say the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, reign, and return of our Lord Jesus are all necessary if God's love is to endure forever, if God is to display that love throughout eternity, the incarnation was a necessity. Jesus' life was a necessity. His atoning death was a necessity. His resurrection, his reign, his return are necessities. For as you know, Think back to Israel. God redeemed them from slavery, brought them through the wilderness, led them into the promised land. They conquered the kings who were already there. 
He raised up David. Solomon built the temple, and they all lived happily ever after, right? No. No. David sins. Solomon sins. A few hundred years after the temple is built, the Babylonians come and don't leave one stone on top of another and take the people into exile as a result of their rebellion against God. And so the perfect son of David has to come in order to fulfill the promise to David. The promise of a perfected people rejoicing forever under a loving, almighty king can only happen through the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, reign, and return of Jesus Christ. So let's look at, briefly, four New Testament scriptures that show the completion of what we have seen. We've seen creation, we've seen redemption, we've seen him reaching out to the helpless, we've seen his provision. So let's look at those four aspects under four different New Testament passages briefly. Creation, Revelation 21, 1 and 2. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, presented as a bride adorned for her husband. Here is God's chesed, enduring forever, shown in the new creation, the new creation that will never be stained by sin a new creation that will be fully to the glory of God. And Gigi says, amen. Second, redemption. And we'll look at redemption of the helpless together, those two ideas. The passage that Julia read for us from Romans 5. Let's pick it up in verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for whom? For the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see the echo of that idea? He remembered us in our low estate. He remembered us not only in the physical slavery to Egyptians, but in the spiritual slavery to sin. In 2 Timothy, Paul talks about being, us being taken captive to do Satan's will. And that God would perhaps grant us repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And we would escape from that trap of Satan. 
So he remembered us in our low estate, spiritual slavery to sin, being captive to do Satan's will. There is nothing attractive about us. We were ungodly, and God demonstrates his chesed in that Jesus died for us. As Samuel Crossman wrote in 1664 in that hymn that is referenced in the weekly email, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. But in that death, in that resurrection, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he himself might present to himself the glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's God reaching out to us in our lowest state, in our humiliation, and perfecting us, completing his good work. You see, Jesus not only pays the penalty for our sins so that we do not suffer punishment, he not only redeems us from slavery to sin, from slavery to Satan, he perfects us. He makes us like himself. He remembers us in that low state. And he makes us so that we are without fault, without stain. We are a complete delight to him. So he looks upon his people and he rejoices and he laughs. And he says, I love you with an everlasting love. Redemption of the ungodly, of the unworthy of the helpless, of the humiliated. Finally, fourthly, provision. Revelation 7, 16 and 17. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Provision of sustenance. Provision of protection. Provision of relationship. He will be their shepherd Provision of leadership, he will guide them. Provision of 
life, springs of living water, provision of comfort. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, how can you conclude such an overarching view of who God is and what he does for his people. Verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. Our goals this morning were to understand the phrase and then to believe it, to hold fast to it. I trust your understanding has deepened as the Holy Spirit opens up these truths to you. And now the exhortation, believe it. Hold fast to it every minute of every day. When Satan declares, hey, you know, rebellion against God is the way to actualize yourself. Sin is the way to find joy and fulfillment. There's no happiness in following after God. When Satan tempts you to say no to God and to his law, believe, hold fast, his chesed endures forever through Jesus Christ. When you're tempted to think nothing ever changes, the world just goes gone and on. As Macbeth says, to the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. If you're tempted to think the world is getting worse and worse, I am getting worse and worse, there is zero hope. Believe, hold fast. His chesed is all around you. And that chesed endures forever through Jesus Christ. When you lose your job, when you lose your health, when you lose your friends, believe, hold fast, his chesed endures forever through Jesus Christ. And then, when you're confronted with your own mortality, When you're staring death in the face, believe, hold fast, his chesed endures forever through Jesus Christ. Friends, the Lord God is good. He loves his people with an everlasting love. He creates out of rebels a perfected bride for Jesus, and you are or can be part of that bride. Believe that Jesus came into this world to save the humiliated, to save the ungodly, to save sinners. Repent of your rebellion, your rejection, your stubbornness. Humble yourself before him. He loves you in your humiliation. And then hold fast to that love and thank him Praise him every day, every hour, every minute, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray together.